Hey y'all, this is Deacon Jim Rohner at Forefront Church presenting you with this interview with Yana Bennett about her book, Singleness and the Church, A New Theology of the Single Life. And I say presenting to you because full disclosure, I'm a bystander for the most part in this interview because this interview and this topic, this isn't for me. With Valentine's Day right around the corner, I know a lot of single people can kind of feel some stress and some struggle coming on because even in the Christian progressive church, there is not a lot of emphasis put on the value of singleness and the inherent value that single people have to the mission of the church. So guiding this conversation are Brittany Kahn and Kim Owens, who are the co-leaders of the Singled Out small group here at Forefront Church. And they have some awesome questions, some awesome talking points for Yana that just deal with finding the value inherent in every single person, what they contribute to the church, how the church can make more space and room for them, and how we can kind of knock marriage off its pedestal and just kind of stop idolizing it and and also erasing the shame that comes from you know some biblical texts that want to degrade people for their sex and their sexuality so i hope you really enjoy this conversation i got a lot out of it and if you are interested in this conversation in small group in forefront church please stick around until the end of the episode and i'll fill you in a little bit more about how you can find out more about the church about the small group and just how you can be uh, involved. But here it is, everyone, Kim and Brittany talking with Yana Bennett. Thank you again, Gianna, for joining us. Um, we read your book and we really had some questions to kind of follow up with, um, especially being two women that are in single uh, church groups and we're leading them. And we, you know, um, I feel and Brittany feels it's important to you know, get as much information as we can because we are leading people, you know, and um, I, I appreciate you joining this this call or this interview uh, with us. So um, I'm sure you've heard this question a lot, um, but we're going to ask it just for the for people that have never read your book, never heard of you. Just I want to get more con. I just want people to have more context of uh, your book. So the question is, um, what was the catalyst for you writing this book? Oh, yeah. So the catalyst is really my own experience of being single. Um, I mean, basically, I, I just felt like uh, once I left high school, um, that uh, there was just like just nothing there, like less than nothing there. And it, it felt really isolating and really lonely. And I just thought, you know, that's not the way church should be. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, I wanted to think about that. So I actually started writing this, uh, I, I wrote another book before this one that was sort of the beginning sort of of that journey. Um, and I'm actually married with kids now. So it's kind of funny to think about that. Um, but I've never, I feel like I've never stopped um, thinking about and being interested in thinking about singleness because you know, I have so many friends who are single in a variety of ways. And, um, you know, I couldn't do the life that I have without those friends. And I'd like, I, I hope that I'm supporting them as well. So for me, there's this kind of, you know, the church is everybody. And if we're going to take that seriously, then we all got to kind of think about that. In your book, uh, Jesus was, I mean, not in your book, but in the Bible, Jesus was single, right? Mm -hmm. So why do you believe that religion or Christianity is focused so much on marriage? If Jesus, the, the very person we're supposed to be following was single. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question because it is kind of interesting that, um, that Christianity has been so focused on marriage. Um, I really kind of think that's a, a fairly recent thing. Uh, you know, it's a, really the last couple hundred years that we've gotten this sort of fascination with especially nuclear families, you know, like mom, dad, and kids, um, and like just that group. Because I think that, I think that Christians throughout much of the last 2,000 years have actually lived in much broader, much, much more loosely defined groups of people who, you know, and so sometimes that was a mom, dad, and kid, but often that was also 
grandma and grandpa, or maybe aunt and uncle, and or, or maybe just other people who weren't related who lived with, with a sort of group of people. You know, and so we really thought much more about households than we thought about, um, you know, kind of the nuclear family. And so that's just really a thing that I think come to like just in the past couple hundred years. And there's a lot of reasons why that the nuclear family come to the forefront as, um, as important. I think one of them is the industrial revolution and the way that in the 19th century, once you start having people and especially men moving off to factory jobs, um, you end up getting a very different conception of what a family looks like and what needs to happen. Um, because if you think about it, if you're doing cottage industries, if you're making, I mean, whatever you're making to sell, like shoes or baked goods or whatever, um, in a pre-industrial age, or if you're working on a farm or that kind of thing, there's just a lot of people that are going into that. And um, so a lot of people can be sort of part of your circle. Um, support, but also, um, you know, part of a household and that kind of thing. But once you get the industrial revolution, you really get a kind of closing down on that and a truncating of that. I think that gets um, glorified, especially after World War II, like people say that they want to return to normalcy, um, but normalcy comes right along with kind of a move, the American move to the suburbs and the rise in wealth and all kinds of things that go along with that. And so I just think that there's, I think there's a number of factors that are going on with that. Going, going off of that, um, you talk about this concept called normal, but you know, when we look at Jesus's ministry, Jesus was anything but normal. Um, why do you think that um, contemporary Christians um, really, I would say <clears throat> ever since the, what we know is the church was formed like after, you know, the fourth and fifth century, we see a dramatic turn um, and we see orthodoxy set in place. Um, why do you think that singleness was virtually erased as a possibility and this focus on normalcy, this focus on the nuclear family um, became so prevalent. Um, and I know that you just hit on this, but for, 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 for Christians specifically, why do you think that there was this normalcy? Who was it benefiting to enforce this? Let me come back to that in just a second, because I just want to emphasize that I think for, you know, for, so I think singleness in a, especially in a kind of monastic context, as um, so like Christian monks, um, both men and women living together in community but being single was a thing and a, a very big thing for, for Christians for, um, for many centuries. And, uh, and, and I think that that kind of went out of favor. Um, I, I think some of it had to do with, some of it had to go back to the 16th century and the way that I think the Protestant reformers read scripture and they read, they read, I think Genesis one and two and saw like, here's the goodness of marriage. And it did not look like that should overtake what was written in scripture about Jesus as single or about what Paul said is single. Like it seemed, I think it seemed to somebody like Martin Luther that marriage and family ought to take more of a more ought to be become more important rather than the way that it had been. I mean, it it had almost seemed, and I think I think Martin Luther was right. It, it had almost seemed like being single and especially being celibate, single, monastic type was the only way to follow God, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that. Um, you know, I think Martin Luther kind of turned, turned, up, turned the path um, that way. The difficulty with that is that then, but you still have single people and you still have people who are also trying to be disciples of Jesus Christ who right. are not married. And so I think, um, I think from a Christian context, you have like kind of 
a couple of different idolatries going on depending on your tradition, right? I mean, one of them might be overemphasizing celibate singleness um, in a sort of monastic tradition and saying like, here's the main way, possibly the only way to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then I think you have also um, people saying, here's married life and it's the main way, possibly the only way to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I think that I, I think I, so. I think I think that people are just trying to to work out uh, in the church. What did that look like? What did that mean? Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, and it and it leads me to more questions. Um, where where do you think um, since these are the people that um, you know Kim Kim and I are mostly reaching out to, and most single people in the church are not clergy members um and and they're not monastically single um and so where where do you think um contemporary non-monastic not necessarily celibate they they may be celibate but they may not be uh single people fit in um in the church with a big c <laughs> Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I think I think the integral to the church, I mean, I think we need each other, like I was saying earlier, like I think we need we need to be married and single together. And we need like we need we all need as much support as we can get to live this life of following Jesus. So um so I think that's the key thing. But I you know, in, in, in terms of exactly where people end up fitting, I think that that's still something we're, we're all trying to work out because, you know, I, I think monasticism is still there as a possibility. Monasticism still exists. But, you know, one of the things I was trying to get across in my book is there's a lot of other ways that people end up being single and especially in the 21st century. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that that looks, but it's not, it's still not entirely, like we're still trying to live out and figure out maybe in some creative way, like what does that look like? I will say though, that one of the interesting things I found as I was writing the book was that we have, we actually have long tradition of um, trying to create communities, uh, trying to create communities of single people in a variety of ways. So I guess maybe one of the ways I would say, where do, where do people fit? I think they fit in intentional communities of Christians, um, maybe, maybe or maybe not living together, but at least having some kind of intentionality about that. So maybe something exactly like the group you guys are running um, works with that. But I think, um, I, I think there's a, I think there's like, you look at church history over and over again, people have created these communities. So. You know, one of the things, one of the groups of people I talk in my talk about in my book is widows. You know, that's scriptural. There are the, the, the uh, Timothy talks about these orders of widows. There were apparently women, not necessarily older women like we might be prone to thinking about today, because widows could be a whole lot younger um, in the first century. But but groups of widows who are considered to be people who might run certain things in the church, might do certain liturgical forms of worship, might um, pray for certain kinds of things, might do certain kind of acts of mercy or um, justice in the community. And, um, and you know, they, they live together and they would buy a house and they live together. Um, I think that, I mean, I think that's kind of cool. And it, from what I can tell, that seemed to be something that Christian did for a long time. <laughs> after, I mean, right up into the 19th century. And then that kind of goes away again because of, you know, a sort of social social event that, that I mentioned earlier, the industrial revolution. So where you got the economic thing hitting, you get more and more people kind of getting wealthier, more, more people in work, that kind of stuff. I, I think there's a kind of lessening of awareness of of the widows in people's lives. That's just one example, but I think I saw that over and over again, um, engaged people, um, people sort of thinking about dating, um, single mothers with children. I, I just, there's a range of, there's a range of ways that, that all these people are kind of supported in community. 
Um, and going off of your point earlier when you were talking about idolatry, something I found really, really interesting was when you talked about marriage as a consumer choice, especially for men. Um, I, I think that that's a big thing because um, it, it really hits on this notion of what a lot of people, um, and not just in the church, but throughout life, we, I mean, think about all the movies and songs that are written about romantic love, right? We idolize this, this, like you are not complete until you found your romantic partner. Um, and so, especially for men, um, do you believe that this is tied to the stigma of women being single? Um, in that maybe, you know, if, if we're thinking of consumerism, that the women were not chosen, they were left on the, self, uh, on the shelf, so to speak, mm -hmm. that singleness can't be a choice. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think that there is a, I think there's a big consumer aspect of the way that we maybe idolize marriage. Yeah, there's a kind of sense of like, well, this is what, if this is what life has to look like, then I'm going to go get this. Right. And there's that, that kind of sense of like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of make this happen. And, um, and I, I think there's a lot of stories that a lot, you know, a lot of sort of fictional stories that try to say that and romanticize that. And um, I, I mean, I just think that's a, I think that's a, pro a serious problem. I, I mean, I, I think, um, I think especially the narrative of a, be, there being a the, the one is um is a problem because i mean i think there are people and we have to learn to live with people and um and you know um that's not to say we get married to to just everyone we meet it, but it just means like you know our relationships with each other can be different in different kind of ways but um it just means that like uh, I, I think it would be easily the, the case that there would be somebody else that somebody might get married to. I mean, this is another thing I talk about in my book is that somebody who gets widowed or divorced might easily find someone to get married to, uh, another someone. <laughs> and, and I think that calls into question the whole kind of soulmate thing um, in, in a certain kind of way. Um, but, and, and also they might not, <laughs> or you might fall in love with somebody and then realize they don't actually, they haven't fallen in love with you in the same kind of way like that relationship never going to happen, even if you want it to. So, um, but I do think there's kind of emphasis on like, could I, could I make this happen in a way that, you know, where I still have all this agency. And the thing about human relationships is because there's more than one person in there, it doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. I do like what you said in the book about every, there's every season you experience a form of singleness. I thought that was so good like that's that like was it was like a mind blower to me because I was like yeah you're right like you could be divorced and single you could widowed and single like so it just kind of broadened my idea of what single could really means you know and uh anybody can experience being single um at any point right um speaking of that on page 23 chapter one you talked uh there was a section where you talked about black women uh black women and singlehood mm -hmm. I wanted to get more context on that. Um, can you give us more context of what you meant about being black and single? Being black and single, yeah. I mean, it was an it was it was a it was a group of books and articles that I encountered that were written by black women who were just talking about you know some of the particularities of black community and being single and just saying like I mean again I think I think coming from a space of there seems to be a lot of idolatry about marriage but you know again that's not going to be the way that that um that people's lives necessarily get lived. and I, so what I really found great about these women that I was reading who were black and single and celebrating that was you know this is just trying to name like there are ways to there are ways to live a good Christian life and I and and, and be a strong woman for Christ and um and be a, a a representative of yeah and be a representative of Jesus and and to be for my whole community 
And uh, I just, I just thought that was, um, that was amazing. I, I think, um, I think some of that too is just coming from some sociological, some demographic data about, you know, the plight of, of black men, a lot of black men kind of going missing from, from black communities kind of uh, because of higher incarceration rates and, um, and, and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, one, um, and so I think one of the things that these women were saying is, look, I mean, there are some, there are some really big challenges going on for black communities. Um, and, you know, how, how are we gonna, how are we gonna witness to, to uh, witness to singleness in the midst of that? So, yeah, I mean, that's where they, that's, I think that's, those are some of the things that they were coming from. But I was mostly just struck by, here are some strong women, um, such as voices celebrating singleness. And I just, I love the celebratory voice of that. So I wanted to highlight, highlight that too. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting um, where you did mention the, the missing of, of Black men. And, and I did like that you kind of double back and we talked about interracial marriage too. Because I, I guess I don't want people to get the impression that, um, being black and single you're you're most you're going to be single because there's not enough black men in right right impression i that's why i asked for more context because i, I believe that probably was not what you were saying no 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 yeah, <laughs> no yeah. absolutely yeah. so yeah thanks for thanks for pointing that out absolutely not i mean this isn't it wasn't as much about um it, it was definitely not about like denying that interracial marriages don't exist because of course they do. And um, what I was trying to do is present the, the voices of those particular women, but that obviously wouldn't be the voices of all black women and their experiences of being single too, for sure. I know a lot of people that are not interested in getting married. Um, they believe they have so many different beliefs on why not to get married, right? Mar uh, marriage has definitely lost its appeal for most people. Well, I mean, not most people, but yeah, quite a bit, right? So um, do you still believe that marriage still has meaning and why? I do. Um, I mean, I am married, so I should probably say that. <laughs> I mean, say that I do believe that marriage has meaning. Um, but I do think we have to knock it a little bit off its pedestal. Um, from what it had been, or maybe maybe a better way to put it is it has already been knocked off its pedestal, and how do we sort of think about that? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I just think we continue to live in a world where a lot of churches really prioritize marriage and family, and I think you can just see that from looking at their worship bulletins or um, seeing, like, what kind of groups are going to be meeting this week, and a lot of time is devoted to often, not always, not in every church, um, but a lot of it is devoted to um, supporting people who are married and especially people who are married with kids. And I don't at all want to denigrate that because I do think that that's an important piece. I mean, I think this is also going back to Martin Luther and that kind of reading of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and talking about, you know, relationship between men and women and this kind of call to be fruitful, to be, um, to have children, to, to um, be stewards of the earth, all those kinds of things are really important. Um, and so, and then, you know, going to what Jesus talked, Jesus talked about marriage and, um, and it's important, especially by talking about not getting divorced. Um, and then Paul talks about marriage and, and emphasizes that it might be um, that, that marriage, uh, a marriage relationship can show us something of the mystery of what it means to be the church, which, um, which, is, which is really kind of a fascinating thing to say. Uh, and, and I think that mystery resides in, you know, here, here are these two people, these strangers really, learning how to live with each other, learning how to love each other. And, um, you know, regardless of how well you think you know somebody when you get married to them, you're going to know them maybe a little better <laughs> after five or 10 years. 
And, and but I, I am I think that for a lot of people, even even people who say they've been married for fifty or sixty years, you know, they'll still say, well, there's still this kind of mystery there. I still don't understand this person. And yeah. I think that there's, there's that kind of thing there. And I think that that's true of the church. You know, I think there's a lot of people that. I mean, that, that kind of mirrors the kind of relationship that we have with each other as the body of Christ, but it also mirrors our relationship with, with, with Christ as the head of the church. Like, Jesus is still a mystery to me. I, I mean, I, I think that's great because, yeah. because I'm still seeking what that looks like. What is, you know, what does it mean to, to, follow, to follow him? That's still a mystery too. That's a mystery that keeps unfolding. So so that's why I think that's why I find value in uh, that's why I think marriage is just really important. Um, but like I said, knock that off its pedestal a little bit because I think that we had been um, as a church just overemphasizing uh, marriage as really the main way to live a Christian life. And so for anybody who didn't experience that for anybody who couldn't who didn't feel like they could find the one or find love or that kind of thing I think that ended up that just kind of messed with people's kind of sense of themselves I think that's really sad um because I don't think that's at all what the gospel suggests I'm wondering if, if I might step in here for a bit I know I said I'd I'd, I'd be quiet um but as the saying goes uh, God grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man um, and so I just had a, a question about, in your estimation and study, how much of a stigma when it comes to singleness is, is perpetuated by a system like patriarchy? Because mm-hmm. I know we have, in the Bible, we have, I mean, who do we look to as, as one of the, the biggest examples of a, a single person who can still fulfill a path is, is Paul, who's like, yep, I'm going to be single. And then we see in, you know, the Victorian era, this idea of, marriages are basically uh, can come down to like business transactions where um, a, a woman only has worth connected to the man that she marries. And even up to something like today, I know there are some communities where if there are multiple single women living in one establishment, that home is then legally qualifies as a brothel, which mm-hmm. like yeah. doesn't matter what they're doing. That's just how the law declares them to be. And when we have a, a single male minister, it's like what, you know, this guy's devoting his life to, to the service. Whereas if there's a, a woman who's in ministry and things like, hmm, what's wrong with her? Why couldn't she find someone? And so I'm, I'm just wondering about the, what you found about how it's a system like that, that perpetuates this, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that there is a, a stigma, which we're trying to work past. Well, I mean, I, I guess that would, two things. One is I would say, you know, I don't know, my, my experience is single men who are in ministry also get stigmatized. So, um, yeah, but uh, um, maybe to less to less extent than, than women. I mean, but I, so I, but I do think there's a patriarchal thing going on there. I mean, I think we do still have, maybe as a society, still have this kind of discomfort with the idea that you know, women can go to work and make an income that could actually support themselves and and even other people, and that that wouldn't that that's just true. And so, um, the kind of idea that you have to be married, I think, is just is in some way grounded in a false understanding of people's economic realities. Um, I should offer out a a large caveat to that, which is that that's not the case for a lot of people. At the same time, that's not the case for a lot of people, right? That there's a lot of a lot of people who can't um, make it on one salary, but probably couldn't make it even on two. And the the ability to live with more than one person to have each other's financial support is also important. Before I got married, I was living in an intentional Christian community of with with six other adults. And we pooled our money and we lived together um, because that's how we could, that's how we could make it. I mean, that's how we could get groceries on the table and that kind of thing. And, you know, some of that was, a little bit of that was voluntary, but most of that was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not making that much money as a 
um, as in some cases a grad student, in some cases ministers for the church who were working in very poor areas of, um, I was living in Durham, North Carolina at the time, um, very poor areas and really didn't make anything. And so, right, and so there was a kind of sense of like, we need to support each other in that. I think, I think that today when we're in such a time of in unequal inequality in terms of wages and that kind of thing, it's even, I mean, it, I think it's even more the case, but I, I, I think that, I think there's some patriarchy going on. I also think there's some, some um, kind of neoliberal capitalism, if I could <laughs> put a, an academic stamp on it, like a, a kind of over, over indulgent of particular kind of, of earning money and thinking that those are the only ways that we can do that. I mean, I think the nuclear family arose out of that kind of thing. So you're getting around to actually the question I asked like a long time ago, which is who does it benefit to enforce these things? Mm -hmm. um, and it is the people in power. It's the people making uh, the most money because through this discussion, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of realizing the obvious, but uh, marriage has lost its significance over time because marriage used to be beneficial financially and otherwise for a lot of people, especially for women, they pretty much did not have a place unless they had a husband, um, unfortunately. And now that it's kind of lost its merit in that way and society's moved on, the church hasn't moved on, mm -hmm. um, which, which, which I find interesting because I, I, I do, I do want to hold the church accountable and, and say that the church has, has been guilty um, of extending this patriarchal reign, extending this, this, this idea that the only singles groups I've come across in my experiences in church, and I've been, I've been raised in church, you know, I've been going to different churches for 30 years. Um, the, the the only singles groups I've seen have been singles to meet other singles mm -hmm. so that they can get married, like yeah, right? Speed dating. Yeah, yeah. These like really awkward pushes, like Christians meet other Christians, make more Christians. Like it's just, <laughs> and, and there hasn't really been a space um, for those who elect to be single. And what I found a lot of, a lot of what's tied to that, and I'm going to hit on the big elephant in the room that we haven't talked about, is the stigma surrounding sex. Um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stigma on that uh, in, in the church, and it makes people very, very uncomfortable to uh, talk about. So you're mm -hmm. welcome. <laughs> but um, in, in, in your book, you do discuss um, how sex can be a sacred act. What do you define as sacred? I mean, I think that it, I think, I guess ultimately what I would say is it is a, um, that sex, just like anything else, any other activity that we do, um, can be aimed towards being a disciple of Jesus. That makes it something that is holy, important, sacred, yeah. I mean, how we carry out a sex life with each other is really um, it also need to be in the in the mix of questioned about how we, you know, overall questions about how we love each other, how we how we follow God, how we seek to be Christian. So, how do you think Christianity has contributed to sexual revolution? I think Christianity contributed to it in a, because it is because. Christians are asking, along with others, uh, you know, what is what would it look like to take seriously that that actually sex is not sex is actually a part of my Christian action? Like, what would that what would that look like? And um, you, you know, and I think people who people during the sexual revolution who are asking questions about you know uh, uh, raising questions about like, do we need to see sex as a as this kind of private little thing, even dirty thing that nobody ever talks about or thinks about. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people saying, no, actually, shouldn't we like celebrate sex? And there are Christians who are, who are right there saying, yeah, absolutely. We ought to take this 
you gotta take sex seriously and, and also see it like it is good, right? I mean, it is good. It, um, and and what, what are all the ways in which it could be good? And so I think there's a lot of, there's been a lot of Christians um, in the years since the 1960s who have written all kinds of things about what does it look like to have more fun in the bedroom? with um in terms of sex like and i think opened up a lot of different made christians aware that a sex life could be holy and purposeful toward god and also like fun <laughs> and and feel good and all that kind of stuff and so i think and i'm not sure that, that was in any anybody's vocabulary this is the interesting thing about looking at the history of christianity is that you know you can't you can't paint with a broad brush I was a medieval history major when I was in college and some of the stuff we read in Latin was like really sexy and and pretty pretty on the edge actually and um you know and 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 the way that the way that they would kind of intertwine sex and God which is not I think which would be kind of kind of eye-opening even in the 21st century It'd be kind of like really like okay interesting um and i i and so i think that you know christians have done a lot of different things with, with sex and god over over the over the centuries um so i think there's ways that christians can have and can contribute positively to thinking about sex and sexual revolution and then right i do think that christians also contributed negatively i mean i i think that there's you know multiple anecdotal stories, multiple sociological studies that have been done about people um, feeling just the ways in which sex hurt them in the church. And and I think, and, and one of the questions that I think is open, that is an open question is, you know, uh, you know, I come from a Roman Catholic background. So of course we always, uh, these days are thinking about the clergy sex abuse scandal. So I, one of the things I think is a really open question is what are the ways in which atmospheres of secrecy surrounding sex contribute to some really horrific sex act. And, you know, because people didn't name sex in any way, shape or form, then like the children on whom these acts were being done didn't know how to name them or describe them to people. And I think that that had just left all kinds of festering wounds um, and, you know, I don't think that's only a Roman Catholic thing, but I would just say from my own context, I, th I just think that's a really open question there. Another question was uh, surrounding, I guess, the, the purity culture of just, uh, especially me and Brittany kind of grew up in that purity culture, of, like having the purity ring and, you know, no sex at all, you know, like as I grew up as a teenager. And uh, I'm just curious, of, since you have children, um, what ideas that you know what are you going to I guess instill in them as far as choice consent um you know because obviously they're going to be single so what are some ways are you going to kind of steer them and what direction you're going to you know right. Them in? Well, right yeah that's really a good question I mean I think one of the things that just kind of trying to install a really kind of body positive image you know and especially because we've been made in the image and likeness of God our bodies are a temple, all those kind of things. I, I mean, and, 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 you know, scripture is actually extremely bodily. <laughs> so um, I, I think emphasizing that, um, emphasizing care of and respect for bodies, not just our own, but other people, um, I think is a really sort of key part of that. I think I have three daughters. I think it's really important for them to know and understand and love their bodies, especially as they move toward um, having their periods and that kind of thing. I think it's really important for them to kind of, for, for that to be something that, that we love too. <laughs> um, and so those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm hoping to, to, to think with them about. I, I don't know how far I want to push kind of a positive like sex thing. What I want to try to do is, I, I mean, in terms of like, you know, just telling my 13 year old, hey, you know, go ahead and have sex with whomever because that, yeah. um, that isn't, that doesn't seem to me to be very wise. I do want to be, but I do want to talk about sex in relationship to, again, respect for myself, respect, uh, respect for herself, respect for the, her partner. And also, um, and, and, and also just, 
you're saying, you no, know, I mean, I think just as with everything else in human life, there's a lot of opportunity for doing exactly the thing that we wish we hadn't done. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and, and try to be a try to be a person who in a who is a space for you know you can always come and talk to me about it no matter what no matter what happens no matter what mm-hmm. what you do um no matter whether you think it's good or, or bad like right being a space for a place a place to come I think that you're hitting all the right points here I mean choice is a big part of it. And I love that you talked about um, sex with oneself and sex, uh, I'm sorry, and self-love. That's something that is never, ever, ever talked about. And um, that that actually kind of leads me to my next question. Um, We see a lot, a lot, a lot um, of, and in the New Testament as well, a lot of demonizing of sexual, immorality right that is like the big thing that the church harps on um even the church leaders um in jesus's time uh right they were constantly condemning other people um for sexual immorality i mean jesus even steps in at one point um why do you think that certain sins such as divorce are looked on more favorably or even excused in the church while other um sins i'm gonna put sins in quotes because you know it depends on how you um interpret but while other things such as like same-sex relations or premarital sex or um even masturbation these things are so demonized but like something like divorce Mm -hmm. Um, which is the breaking of this sacred marital bond that the church has built up so much is kind of just pushed to the wayside and it's not really a sin. (laughs) Right, but but actually Jesus speaks out very clearly (laughs) and very forcefully about divorce in a way that doesn't necessarily talk about so many of those things. Yeah, Christians are not very consistent on that. And I think the part of the difficulty is because we don't, I think as a whole, as, as a whole group of, you know, the couple billion of Christians, I, I think generally we, we don't want to kind of own up to the fact that, you know, not everything we do is, is perfect. And um, I, I think some of the difficulty is, is we got, we probably got to talk through, we got to probably talk, think through like particular instances, particular cases in order to kind of get at the what, what and why of things. But you know, I think when it comes to divorce, I think one of the real difficulties is you've got a, a Christian tradition where Jesus is pretty clearly against divorce. And yet we've also got all these situations where we know, okay, there are people who are really, really probably need, need to be out of this relationship, like really need to leave, right? And so, so I think the sort of give and take there is how do you, how do you, um, how do you find a way to say it is necessary, even good, that I leave this relationship and and also say at the same time, it's not good, capital G good maybe, that relationships break up. So I think some of it is just, right, how do you deal with tragedy, right? A divorce, I, I write about this a little bit in the book. I mean, part of the difficulty with divorce is not always, but a lot of times people experience that as tragedy. And that, you know, I, I don't think, I, I, can't imagine, I can't think of anyone who gets married and on their wedding day is like, wow, someday I might be divorced and yay, that could be a really great possibility for this relationship, right? Nobody's saying that. <laughs> nobody's celebrating that and and even if in the moment it's the thing to to sort of celebrate in the sense that like that's what needed to happen I mean in a certain way in a certain way like maybe masturbation and premarital sex and stuff are, end up being kind of low-hanging fruit in a way because we can kind of say oh well that okay <laughs> that because it doesn't feel as much of a tragedy um, in a certain kind of way, or because I can kind of say, well, that, that, you know, masturbation, especially, right. That doesn't impact anybody else. I don't have to worry about that. But 
the boys, you can't, you can't talk your way out of saying that doesn't impact anybody else. You, I mean, you just can't, right? And, and premarital sex, I mean, depending on the context, you can kind of say that too, like, oh, that's just about me, or we were two consenting adults or whatever. Um, I, I think it would be, I think it's a little bit of a lie to say it doesn't, it, it, it only impacts that couple or whatever. But, but nonetheless, I think, you know, you can kind of say, well, it doesn't really, you know, impact anybody else. And again, like something like divorce, you can't say that. So, yeah, I just think there's a lot going on. I mean, this is the difficulty with, with a branch of sexual ethics generally. Is just I mean, just uh, for the record, I don't expect you to have any solid answers. And I know I don't. Um, and I know if somebody did have solid answers, I would be very, very, very skeptical. Yeah. Um, and for the record, I definitely think, I mean, especially as a feminist, I 150% believe that there are times that divorce is necessary. Yeah. Um, I am, I am, you know, not saying, well, it's a sin and no one should. My uh, question was leaning more towards uh, why, why, why are a lot of people historically in the church um, obsessed with demonizing the sex lives of others mm -hmm. while yeah i mean that th that's as simple yeah. as it gets well that's a good question <laughs> I, I mean i'm not i'm not sure i, I still haven't figured that out i don't know yeah i mean <laughs> i that it's, is so yeah it's, a big question. it's okay <laughs> i mean i've always found it kind of interesting that People are willing to go after each other when it comes to sex. And it doesn't seem like we go after each other as much about things like money. And yeah, and, and, and that, I, I find that just kind of interesting, especially since I think on the whole, there's a whole lot more written about poverty and the need to care for people who are poor Me. than there are like things about sex. And so, and, and divorced even, right? I mean, it's just that that's less present there. So I just, I, and, and actually the early church writers, the early church mothers and fathers knew that, right? Most of their writings are actually about, you ought to, you ought to be giving to the poor. You ought to be like, you ought to be taking these things seriously and much less about sex, even though the way that they lived their lives were very ascetic, right? I mean, they, they did give up sex. But for them, that was just less, less of an issue than giving up money. I mean, the money thing was a big was a bigger deal. So, how do you think um, the church can really help singles have a voice in their environments and feel heard and feel less stigmatized? That's a great. That is a great question. Um, I think that the church ought to be a lot more supportive by. I think especially by supporting community. So maybe maybe one exactly like yours. Um, but I, I also think also by exp exploring like intentional living communities, like places where people actually live in community with each other and really supporting that and calling out those ministries and saying and highlighting those ministries. I think that would be really important. I think um, clearly making single people part of the worship team, the um, um, uh, uh, preaching about it, right? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to, to do that, I think. Um, I, those are just some of the ways I think. And I think, you know, not having a bulletin that is full of family ministry, but had nothing to say about singles is a pretty easy, easy, easy win there. Like find some stuff that is for, even it, maybe it's not just targeted for single, but maybe it's for just everybody, but find some stuff to put yeah. in the <laughs> But yeah, and before we, we wrap up, I just, one, I want to say uh, thank you. And also how, how refreshing it kind of is to have someone come on here and just admit, like, I, I don't know why these things are, instead of, as Brittany said, someone coming in and be like, this is the way it is. Here's mm -hmm. why it is. Here's how it is. And just to hear someone say, you know what? I don't know. And we need to examine that is so refreshing to hear um but my my final question is i guess um i mean you've written this book you've come on and, and you've had this conversation with us but on a larger scale how are you seeing the conversation around this topic around singleness and the value of single people 
in the contemporary church, how are you, how have you seen it start to change a bit and to see these kind of voices being uh, lifted up more? Well, I certainly think there's a lot more people who are writing memoirs and, um, and, and you know, spiritual writing that come from a place of being single um, in a variety of, you know, across the spectrum of singleness that I try to talk about in the book. So that's one of the ways that just by, by actually just putting your voice out there. Um, I, I mean, I do think that, that the demographic changes that have, you know, that, that are in some ways external to the church, but that obviously impact people in the church are having an impact. So just the fact that there are more and more single adults in the US with every census draw is, um, is I think significant. And I think that'll just, I, I, I think we'll, I, I don't think it will continue to kind of exponentially grow. I could be wrong about that, but, but I do think that that just continue to make an impact because that just means more, you end up knowing more people who are not married. Um, I also think that it's important to recognize that singleness is not only about being never married. And um, because I think that that makes people much more aware, like, wait, we're actually, we're actually living in a world where there are a lot of people who are single adults. And, um, you know, and they're, and they're different and they have different experiences, um, but then there's also some similarities there. And that I think continues to call into question for all of us, you know, marriage and family isn't the only way to be a disciple of Jesus. And that, that I think is a really important piece. Thanks everyone for listening. If anything in this episode stuck with you, resonated with you, and you want to learn more about what we're doing at Forefront, visit us at ForefrontNYC.com. If you are curious to learn more about the Singled Out group, then you can go to ForefrontNYC.ChurchCenter.com backslash groups backslash small dash groups. And I know that's a lot, so I've included the link in the show notes for this episode as well. Find Singled Out and just see what they're all about. Um, But also don't worry because in just a few days, stay tuned to this podcast feed because Brittany and Kim are going to be coming back and I'm going to be interviewing them so that they can dig deeper into Singled Out, their mission there, what they hope to accomplish, and just um, what you can hope to learn if you join them as well. So stay tuned for that in a couple days. That's going to be great, too.